0: Forgot to book a guest this week. I uh, had a combination of things happen to me. Nothing serious, just uh, mildly physically debilitating, uh, that resulted in a lack of attention to my podcasting duties, my scheduling and booking duties. That's the thing about podcasting is once you once you start doing it, you become you become a master of time zones. You start thinking about time zones all the time. And uh, you start thinking about booking people, and who can you get on next, and what would be good, and you know, will this create some sort of brand synergy? Will this create some sort of wonderful brand synergy in the future that I can use to leverage my creations? And you know, you don't you don't want to think like that, because you know, that's the dead marketing transactional speak that we all talk with nowadays. Um, And it it divorces us from a real human relationship. But, uh, you know, when you when you enter into this current entertainment milieu, that's that's how you start thinking. Start thinking about your personal brand, you know, Uh, submitting yourself to become a little avatar version of yourself. At at least, you know, maybe it's not as cynical as all that. Probably some people did. It doesn't bother them as much. But um, yeah, I become very I'm very aware of the person who I'm trying to be online, you know, this fun-loving, this fun-loving guy, you know, I have jokes, you will have good times with me, you know, oh, I, I, jokes for miles, you know, jokes for days, you, who, who are you kidding, you know, they cultivate that persona where nothing is bad or nothing is wrong, you know, sometimes I'll be dramatic or make something, but I'm, I'm keeping a lot from people. Because, uh, you know, like everyone, I'm a fucking maniac on the inside. You know, I think terrible things. You know, I, 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 every day is this, you know, uh, constant struggle to be uh, productive against my d- d- series of manias. And uh, I think uh, maybe there is danger in collapsing that persona into your online brand self, your online brand avatar, um, because that's when shit gets weird, you know? That's, um, that's when the line between your, your fictive self that you present for other people and uh, your real self, that, you know, simmering ball of charcoal-like rage that sits at the heart of your being... And without constant vigilance, it threatens to dominate your identity. Rage probably isn't the thing for everybody, but that's that. I do have this. Uh, I always, I always uh, very much identified with the comedy of Bill Burr because that's a lot of the comedy is just I'm keeping a lid on it. I'm keeping a lid on this rage. <laughs> yeah, so which is a very uh, if you if you are burdened with testosterone, it's not burdened. Testosterone's good. Tea is good. Love tea, nothing wrong with tea, but um, if you have that, there's always this. Uh, uh, and, you know, this is not evident of all testosterone havers, but with some, including me, I have this, you know, constant uh, desire for revenge. <laughs> if that makes any sense. You know, it, just for small stuff, you know, someone following too close to me on the street, I shall get my revenge. You know, someone, someone is, you know, I I was walking, I'm this old man now, you know, and I have an old man gait, you know, I have a, I have a paunch that hangs out and I walk like, uh, you know, I'm having these John Kennedy O'Toole, I'm having these Bo is afraid moments now. I, I passed some youths the other day, some teenagers, and they were saying, hey, mister, what you?" You're having a nice day out. You're having a walk, and they said it threateningly, threateningly, as youths do, <laughs> and um, and then I ignored them, and they shouted at me, "Prick, asshole," <laughs> which was very funny to me. It's like I didn't know. I didn't know that actually happened. I didn't know people accosted you in that way. or It had been so long since I had been accosted in that way. Um, maybe they wasn't being accosting. Maybe I was being rude. Maybe they were trying to sell me sell me subscriptions in their magazines so that they could go to Cabo for the summer or whatever. But, um, no, uh, uh, it was just, it was just some malevolent little dudes. Nah, they weren't malevolent. That's, you're, you're just angry. I mean, that's, you know, that's it. When you're a teenager, you're very angry. You got the raging hormones and you have this sense that there is this great injustice in the world, especially being done to you. And, uh, yeah from that injustice stems that rage you know you want any measure of control over something because when you're a teenager you have zero control over everything you know you you think your life is you know adrift as an adult but you have you know you have agency way more agency than a freaking teenager um and so you know uh i think uh over time though, that rage, you know, I, I think that rage is ultimately the source of my depression. And that's what, <laughs> that's what we're going to talk about. Folks, I'm doing the solo episode. I'm doing the whole depression thing. You know, before I get into the whole depression thing, I want to say something about uh, what I think is called the Depression Industrial Entertainment Complex, which is a long word, but um, it's very funny how much material in entertainment we have now that specifically deals with uh major depressive disorder or suicidality uh i for some reason i watched the fucking i watched the most garbage fucking shit on earth i watched the most garbage tv i was watching the dark side of comedy on on vice it was a vice show even know, I don't think Vice exists anymore, but whatever. It was a Vice show and they had like, oh, d- all these comedians that bad stuff happened. To Chris Farley, oh, he died young. You know, it's the dark side of comedy. Oh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's Freddie Prinze Sr. Oh, he died young. It's the dark side of comedy. And then they had Maria Bamford as the 10th episode. And she was like, she's, uh, has, uh she's mentally ill. Uh, the dark side of comedy. Uh, um... And, uh, but, uh, it, it's, it's funny cause the Maria Bamford episode had like the murderer's row of depression comics. It had like Gary Goldman and Mark Maron, you know, uh, guys that have staked parts of their career by meticulously describing their depression. And, um, not that it, I'm, I'm denigrating it. I think that they do it very well. Um, and I, a lot of people get mileage out of depression comedy. Who, who else would be on that murderer's row? I think that. Oh, who's that one? Chris Gethard. Chris Gethard did a big depression special where he talked, frankly, about his depression. It was very good. Um, But yeah, you have this um, you now have this entertainment uh, uh, complex set up for us to talk about mental health, frankly and openly, but also for entertainment, which is that, you know, um, collapsing of your brand persona and your real life uh, your real life problems, which I find interesting. And I find there's always like, uh, there's always a tension in that, that can never be resolved because, uh, inherently who you present to other people, uh, especially through entertainment media is always going to be a version yourself and not the person that, you know, actually is at their worst, or the person that you would never show to people because you know you're ranting in the fucking shower and you're saying you know wild shit that you don't want to be saying because you know you you you've just talked yourself into uh, being a maniac for that day. But um, yeah, I see I, I see this uh, uh, and it's not just with comedians too. It's uh, Bojack Horseman was very popular because it it talked about depression and with this sort of the clinical mental health language that at the time wasn't as ubiquitous as it has now become. Um, But um, I actually, people make a lot of reference to that mental health language, but um, I guess BoJack Horseman didn't really do that because when they say that mental health language, they're talking about like, and you should distance yourself from your boundaries. You know, lots of talk about boundaries. (laughs) Everyone's talking about boundaries all the time. Um, it becomes that sort of um, a clinical way of, of putting sort of boring words around your emotions so that they don't affect you as much, which I think is good for some people and helps organize their thoughts, but to some people it comes across as um, uh, sort of uh, not dealing with the problem or compartmentalizing it or sort of like Protestanting it in a way. It's like being very Protestant about it. They've just reinvented stiff upper lip. But for uh, but for an age where you you are your eyebrows are in the sad position, and you you sound like the teacher from Beavis and ButtHead, you sound like David Van Driessen. <laughs> um. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna talk about our boundaries today. Yeah, yeah, uh, and you know, I think there's a place for that. I think a lot of people actually very much benefit from that, and they need that language. But um, once you become aware of it, and you begin associating it with a sort of triteness you know that's it for you it won't work for you anymore because in you know like a lot of ways like um a lot of mental health treatment is just magic spells that you tell yourself that's what CPT is you know the hilariously named cbt cock and ball torture everyone knows it's the same as cock and everyone knows everyone knows it's the same as cock and ball torture why don't they change it why don't they change it they know They know in their heart it's the same as as cognitive behavioral therapy. They tell you to make a list. You know who made a list? BuzzFeed. And they're dead. They're dead in the water because they made (laughs) lists. I I don't know why I'm doing. Trump does does his cognitive behavioral therapy, type five. Um, But, yeah, uh, it's that reaffirmation process, writing something down over and over again so it gets sort of repeated in your head and you fire that neuron over and over and over again. So, uh, it, uh, you know, you know, I could have gotten, that's my understanding of CBT. If I've gotten that wrong, I'm sure all the CBT people will be after me. But, uh, I, I tried, I tried that method, but it didn't really work for me because I had a brain that resisted, um, that list making thing, that sort of organized quality uh, I, I liked the DBT more, the dialectical behavioral therapy, the one which is just talking it out and you're allowed to sort of talk yourself into ways to make you feel better because, you know, I, I think that that's what worked for me was, uh, trusting my, my own intuition on how eventually to, uh, make my feelings, uh, align with what I wanted in life or... How to just not feel bad every day how to not feel that low level of discomfort every day um and uh i would talk about it yeah so uh, the other thing with depression and the uh, the industry that's cropped up around it and the and the mental health language and the clinical quality of it you know it all becomes overwhelming too you don't even want to pursue these, uh, mental health avenues anymore because even to pursue them seems cliched, or, you know, that whatever they're telling you, you've heard before and, uh, you can't really, uh, benefit from it or you're wise to the grift, you know, even if it's there, you know, therapy does work, you know, that the reason why it does work is mostly sort of like a weird placebo trick you play on yourself. But that's it. You know, that is the key to mental health, like weird placebo tricks you play on yourself. (laughs) I'm vastly oversimplifying, of course, but that's sort of it. It's just sort of um, there's a there's an old 4chan post. (laughs) I make reference to an old 4chan post, but it's like um, it goes along something to the effect of uh, it's a green text. So it goes be depressed One day, decide to not be depressed anymore. Holy shit, that actually worked. But it sort of it, it does it's sort of like that though you know that's that's also a vast oversimplification but the times at, at times you will find yourself to be able to will yourself out of depression almost miraculously um, to tell yourself to do something almost by divine providence um, and uh, yeah the, those things are uh, miraculous and sometimes they can last for weeks you you're productive and happy. But uh, the tunnel comes again, you know. And uh, that's how I would describe, I think that's how a lot of people would describe depression. It's uh, the image that comes to me most, because it feels like a long, dark tunnel. A tunnel where you know there is light coming at the end of it, but you can't see it yet. And you have to hold on to the idea that there is light there. But it's so uh, difficult because it's so dark and you've been walking for a very long time uh, and you're burdening yourself with just this information, this knowledge that you've been walking for a very long time. It's sort of like the thing uh, when inexperienced pot smokers smoke pot for the first time. They always think, will it be like this forever? And that's also the effect of depression. Will it be like this forever? And the answer is no, nah, probably not. Uh, I mean, the only the, the caveat being that in order to will yourself out of depression, you have to do things. That's the the, the only thing you do is do things. Is, is is form new experiences. That is like I find the most effective thing. But it, the funny thing about depression is that it makes you not want to do new experiences for fear you'll get hurt, for fear that, uh, you know, it won't be worth it, for fear that you'll be abandoned again, uh, you know, for, for anything like that. And, um, that, that's really, that's really the insidious nature of it. It's in order to not be depressed, you have to do stuff, but you don't want to do stuff because you're depressed. Uh, but Why? But why you ask yourself? Why am I depressed? When did it get this way? How did it get to be this bad? Well, everyone's different. And uh some people I I meet they're depressed like, yeah, I was 8 8 years old and I was fucking depressed and that's that's terrible. You know, oh my god. You know, I was I was sort of like weird at 8 years old and a little melancholic, but I would not describe myself as depressed or didn't have that sense of like overwhelming responsibility that contributed to my uh adult depression or depression that I think I could only experience really as an adult because when you're a kid you'd not really like or even when I was a teenager I don't think I would say I was depressed um no 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 actually no I was I was depressed when I was a kid I, I specifically I when I was uh in 10th and 11th grade yeah let's go back let's go all the way back let's do it let's do a little history here <coughs> So, uh, my my parents did not have a great marriage. Uh, they're good people. They're individually wonderful people. I love them, but um, together they uh, were not were not a match. I won't uh, I won't detail anything about it. But uh, yeah, they got very mad at each other a lot, and that's not it's not terribly in a good environment if you're coming home to mad a lot of the time or you know that's your your major experience with human relationships you know your parents form uh, your first and most lasting understanding of the world so if they're mad at each other a lot you know that's what you come to anticipate right uh, people are going to be there's a lot of tension you know there's always tension that needs to be resolved or there's some sort of uh, tension waiting ahead that I will have to eventually resolve. And, um, you know, you you take that everywhere with you. You take that sense of anxiety with you, even as a kid. So, um, but I wouldn't say I was like, like really dreading the next day of school until about age 10, where I was at a school where I was getting bullied. But what I will say about this bullying is—I remember it as bullying. I think, but also when I go back in my memory, I can think of things that I did to um, maybe push this bullying onto me. I'm not saying I deserved it, and there, like, I—okay, I, I am saying I deserved it. I don't think I—I th- don't think I'm saying I was bullied. I think I was ostracized because I was an asshole, and I never caught the ways that I was an asshole. Because, uh, you know, when you're a kid, you live in that sort of uh, a world, uh, an especially solipsistic world, where you can only think of your own actions and desires and your own bias towards yourself. So, um, yeah, (laughs) yeah. But why was I an asshole, though? You know, why was I—and, oh, also, this is not to say that— lots of people who were bullied. I would I would venture to say that most people who are bullied, 90%, 95% are not the type who bring it on themselves in the way that I was doing. But um, I very much had the experience where there's an episode of 30 rock where Liz Lemon uh, believes she was bullied in high school and then she goes back to her high school reunion and everyone reveals that they were afraid of her because she would say, like, devastatingly mean things to them. And she just had edited that part of her, her antagonism out of her memory. And, you know, when I thought back to when I was 10 or 11 of, like, what did I do to deserve this ostracization from my peers, I was like, oh, yeah, I was saying, like, like weird, arrogant, mean shit to them, none of which I can, like, fully remember. But, you know, I, I can, like... uh I I definitely think there was uh, a component of uh, self self-inflicted harm to it too. There, um, and uh, I think a lot of this tension, a lot of the reason why I was sort of mean and arrogant and you know was acting out and couldn't socialize normally, is because I was, you know, my my main vehicle for socialization was this. Uh, was this sort of uh, argumentative uh, home life, this home life which was constantly steeped in conflict. Um, and so much so that uh, it, it came to develop where any conflict made me nervous, actually, uh, which was very funny because when I'll detail of when I became the most depressed, uh, it all coincided with when I was trying to become a lawyer. Um, so, yeah, it's funny that I became totally conflict averse. I became, you know, nauseous at the thought of conflict, but I wanted to go into a profession where uh, <laughs> that's all I would be doing. All I would be doing day after day would be yelling at people and getting into uh, situations where I uh, people were potentially mad at me, and, uh, and <laughs> I thought that would be the way. That would be the way to go. This, shirk, this shrinking violet, that is me. I could easily handle that, but we'll get to that later. So, um, yeah, so when I was 10 or 11, I was getting bullied, uh, and this led to insomnia, incessant insomnia, dread about the next day of school. And that That's like when I had, like, uh, I would say I first started flirting with mental illness, first, uh, first started flirting with, you know, the voices, You know, not not in like the like the hard uh, schizophrenia type of voices, but like, uh, you know, those weird compulsions you have sometimes to just, you know, yell something out strange or maybe I'm generalizing. (laughs) I'm probably generalizing this. I probably have a very specific type of psychosis, but um, yeah, yeah. when I was 10 or 11, just could not never sleep, would never sleep. I would, you know, I, it it was this constant nightmare. I would, uh, come to hate the sounds of birds chirping at like four, 4am, you know, when they first started chirping, that would be like, well, I know I'm going to feel terrible for the entire next day. Uh, and this will just repeat again night after night, and I'll get this very insubstantial amount of sleep. And you know, I, I wasn't really able to. For some reason, I just never told anyone about it. I never sought any treatment for it. I just spent you know, <laughs> you know, like three to four years of uh from ten to fourteen, actually probably longer than yeah from from ten to all of high school really was was insomnia. Uh, ten to eighteen. Uh, just could never fucking sleep you know uh, two to three hours of sleep a night uh, because uh, I would be dreading the next day of school even when it got better even when I stopped getting bullied at like age age 13 I, I never got bullied past age 13 because I was lucky enough to be in a school situation that was relatively chill uh, was non-murderous towards me. Uh, I was still a nerd and still you know uh, sometimes, Uh, curried ostracization but um never in a way that was especially long lasting or harmful to my to my psyche you know in the way that it was in the way that it was sort of sort of total in elementary school uh yeah and even as it got better um the insomnia still stayed uh which uh Actually, my high school life was pretty good. I don't remember being particularly depressed throughout high school. I remember being very anxious because of tests and exams and all that. But that's a very normal type of anxious to be, you know. And if I were to say where the dread of the insomnia was coming from, it was from that very normal amount. I mean, that's still a crazy amount of pressure that we put on kids. <laughs> that's still That's still a lot. You tell them if you if you fail this fucking test, Billy, sh- your life is gonna be shit. You're gonna be an asshole. You want to be a fucking asshole, Billy? <laughs> I don't. What? You better fucking study, or you'll be a fucking asshole the rest of your life, Billy. And so yeah, they're telling they're telling me that I'm Billy in this situation. That you know that, but you know at, at least. That, that's a better thing. You know, uh, fear of not being able to succeed is at least a, a somewhat lesser uh, tension than fear of being ostracized and, and perhaps savagely beaten up <laughs> when you go to school. That is, that is a much better fear to have, even though it's still not a good one. I mean, in a way, that's, you know, the driving fear that keeps us all subservient under capitalism, you know, and the the utility of houseless people in our capitalist society is to remind people is to be that weird carrot on the stick it's like this could be you i guess it's not a carrot on the stick it's a it's a prod that you know you can always prod you the prod you with the you're always this close to houselessness you're always this close to a life of somewhat intolerable discomfort so you know better keep working down at the fucking cheese factory God damn, I've been hailing all this cheese fumes from the cheese factory. I'm getting industrial cheese waste under my fingernails. I'm coming home at night. I'm, you know, just shredded. You know, the scene in True Detective where they're interviewing the lady and her hands are all fucked up because she's worked at an industrial laundry for 30 years. So they're all, like, bleached and chemical stained and degraded. And But I I have that from working at the goddamn cheese factory. Uh, <laughs> So anyway, um, yeah, throughout high school, it was, it was all right, uh, nothing, nothing really bad happened, uh, and, but I mentioned the insomnia, the insomnia is important to sort of the development of the mental health problems, because, uh, I started using marijuana heavily to cope with it, and when I first realized that weed could be used to, one, help you sleep, and two, kill your dreams, which was very... Weed kills your dreams, which is, in a lot of respects, it kills your dreams. Um, but in one respect, it meant that I uh, didn't have nightmares anymore. I wouldn't have anxiety nightmares or night terrors anymore, which was big for me, because that was also like a big component of my insomnia, is in fearing the next day, fearing, you know, what would happen, um, I, I would inevitably be stricken with this sort of restless sleep where... Uh, I would be just having these dreams of uh, you're in class and you're naked and you have a test you haven't studied for. Very normal dreams, but like really ramped up in intensity and like really, you know, they're pointing at my horrible shriveled little red penis and they're saying loser, 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 you know, every single night. You know, all, the, all this fucking weird, inadequate shit, you know, stuff that <coughs> I really hope isn't as common in other people, because if those dreams were as in common as other people, you know, I don't know how anyone would get anything done. Not saying that I'm some sort of nightmare, martyr. I'm sure there there are people that I know who have, like, way worse problems with night terrors than I do, but um, that was just a a component of the insomnia as well. Um, But the great thing about marijuana is you stop dreaming, or you stop being able to remember your dreams. You still dream somewhat, but yeah, it, it does cut that out a lot which long-term is pretty bad for your health. It's not... You should dream. That's you, you, something you need to do. You need to enter the Delta state. You need to get your REM sleep every night for you to have um, uh, a good, healthy life. But if all you're having is nightmares, or if mostly what you're having is nightmares, then, you know, uh, this, this magical dream killer is, uh, is great. And so I just started using that very heavily every day uh, from age 19 to present. You know, it's not something I'm particularly proud of. Um, I think I outgrew performative stoner stuff uh, very... <laughs> I, I, I outgrew that a while ago. For a while I was doing it. And, you know, I think there's still some part of me that enjoys uh, that performative uh, stoner uh, character. I, Lord knows my favorite movies are all basically stoner movies. I love The Beach Bum and whatnot. I love uh, The Big Lebowski, but everyone loves the fucking... All white people. All goddamn white people. You fucking white people. <laughs> um, and uh, Inherent Vice, also one of my favorite movies. It's very stoner movie. But um, I guess there was part of me that identified with that... Uh, lifestyle as well because i i tried to drink i tried to like i'm gonna drink alcohol i'm gonna be a drinker because that's the social thing to do it's how you fuck it's you drink yay but i couldn't do it because of my weak jewish stomach you know i could never i could never house enough liquor to get drunk enough to be the life of the party or the other problem was like my reaction to alcohol would be i i would be 15 minutes i would be you know, taking my shirt off and singing "Lust for Life," running down the street, going "Yeah!" And then, you know, after 15 minutes, it's like the, the, the crushing uh, tiredness and depression sets in. Well, I, nobody likes me. And I can't do anything. i uh, what what is good. And then, you know, I have to leave whatever party I'm at. So I, I was never able to. That that drug, uh, was never a, a, a very a big social drug for me. But marijuana. The the thing about marijuana was, um, I enjoyed the the environment in which you're supposed to socialize as a dumb college stoner. You know, stuff's a little bit quiet. If there's music on, you're actively listening and commenting to it. You know, it's like, uh, it's a, it's a much chiller vibe, a much less intense vibe, a much less, uh, sensory heavy vibe, which is, uh, what I enjoyed about it as well. Um... And, uh, it's, it was useful at first. Uh, it continues to be somewhat, no, I, actually, at this point in my life, it's probably exceeded its use and is more of a burden than anything because I spend a lot of money on it. I could probably be doing more stuff. It, it fucks up my memory. It scatters around my, it makes me uh, paranoid, which it never did before. Uh, but because it is. It's pretty, uh, it's obviously not physically addictive, but you become very mentally dependent on it. I, I don't know what I do. Don't know what I do without my little bong reps, you know? Feels, feel, feels very difficult to get out of that situation without my little bong reps. But um, I'm, I also mentioned marijuana because I'm sure that has a lot to do with um, depression really setting in as an adult uh, the inability to do things, you know, the inability to pursue what I thought were real adult enterprises because I was hampered by this, um, uh, drug, drug constantly. You know, it's, uh, and you know, I don't want to, it's not like you can't say I'm fucking addicted to, you know, it's the, it's the joke from half baked. Have you ever sucked dick for weed? And the answer is yes, I have sucked dick. (laughs) No, not really. Well, kind of, but, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, you can't, you can't plausibly, you can't go up to heroin addicts and be like, I know exactly what you're going through because I have a serious marijuana addiction and it's, it's, you know, I can't remember dates. It's difficult to remember dates. And you know, the, the heroin addict is like, you know, "I, I sold my sister's baby. In order to get more heroin and you're like yeah that's terrible like i'm bad at doing excel spreadsheets because of weed and that's real tough with wanting to get an office job <laughs> yeah i'm not so that's uh, uh so that but but it really does um it, it really is getting a little long in the tooth and I've, I've tried to abdicate it before and um it's been very difficult for me to do so Not that it's so bad or it's the, you know, the worst thing in the world, but it's something I'm working on and something that I suspect is contributing to my depression and has been contributing uh, to it for a long time. Because um, I think uh, when it really started, when I really started getting sad uh, was after college uh, because you know, now life sets in, you know, now I have this responsibility I didn't have before. Uh, now I, you know, I have this um, constant need to work, you know, there's no, there's no potential for the future. There's just, you know, endless toil. And that's what it sort of came down to this, this perennial exhaustion this uh, sense that I couldn't surmount even the daily amount of work that was expected with me, either from a combination of like uh, laziness and defiance or maybe just um, I didn't have it in me. Maybe I just was born with weakness. I didn't have what it take. But it it was like realizing that a lot of my depression came from the same thing that my insomnia had come from, the anticipation of pain in the next day. And that was the only thing that I could fixate on was the anticipation of pain. Um, There was never any hope for pleasure or whatever hope for pleasure there would be was fleeting because all there was next to me was this giant obstacle, um, this Sisyphean boulder that I roll up the hill and that boulder is work. Work. And, you know, not any work, but, you know, work that I specifically didn't want to do or I was not, uh, stuff that was just a job that didn't mean anything to me spiritually. Because I could work a long time on stuff that meant a lot to me, art or music or anything like that. But if I was called upon to, you know, be many jobs that I, I was like a security guard at one point, I don't think I was a particularly good security guard. I don't think I had it together uh <laughs> um or like a cashier or something like that or you know any of the any of the joe jobs that I've had previously any of the you know a, like a retail work or uh customer service or eventually when I started getting office jobs and you know pseudo legal jobs you know thank god I you know had the it w- it was smart enough to recuse myself of being a lawyer because I would have been the worst fucking lawyer in the world but um yeah, it was from these jobs or it was from working these sort of minimum wage um, uh, customer service jobs that, I, you know, the sort of pointlessness of everything really started to set in, which is, you know— It it might be weak on my part to say that, or it might show a weakness of spirit, but I'm I'm just trying to be honest, you know? I'm trying to be honest with how I felt, which is like, oh, it's going to be like this every day. It's going to be like this forever. It's going to be like this forever. And which is amazing to me is because it's like, it, it seems like tons of people are getting along in these jobs without having these damning existential feelings. You know, how are they able to do it? And, you know, I'm not, I'm not able to cajole enough, uh, will or wisdom out of my body in order to just force it to do this thing that I need to do in order to survive. But, um, no, I just couldn't, I couldn't deal with it or I could at first, you know, that's how it sort of works is you, you live with what I would call this force field of discomfort, and it's, it's not so much discomfort. It's like, uh, you know, when you run your fingernails against silk in, in the wrong direction or against the grain, and it creates a sort of unpleasant, scratchy feeling. I, I liken it to that feeling all over your body. And it's just sort of tingling around whenever, you know, you're doing the thing that is sucking up eight to 12 hours of your life every day. Um, and to the detriment of other things that you could or should be doing and uh you get uh you just live with it (laughs) and and you know maybe it's it's most people are living with this and they don't notice or they don't know they should be feeling so bad about it and they just accept it as it is but um you know i was living with it and uh i thought what i wanted and this brings me to how i decided to go to fucking law school right um which was a hilarious, hilarious decision, because anyone who had ever met me previous would be like, you? <laughs> Why? Uh, there was a, there's a lot of reasons. Uh, one, I, I have a, I love my mom. She's a very stereotypical Jewish mother. He's like, a- Alex, you was such a brain. You should become a lawyer. You you know you have a you have a great mind you have a good line you're so good at arguing you should be a that's not how she sounds she doesn't sound like a Long Island Jew but that's in my head that's how she sounds she sounds like Linda all moms sounds like Linda Belcher in my head um, and uh, uh, yeah so uh, there there's that sort of pressure this idea from very young that a lawyer is like a, a something of prestige or something that you can do if you have some sort of intellectual capacity. It's some way to develop the world around you. And um, the time I graduated college was around, uh, it was around 2011. And um, so the Occupy movement was going on at that time. 2008 was sort of the, the, the year I became an adult at age 18 was also the year the economy crashed. And then I had to learn what credit default swaps were. (laughs) <laughs> because now I didn't know what they were, what they were before, but now they had a huge effect on my life. <laughs> so I needed to know what credit default swaps were. Um, and uh, so when you grow up in, when, when you really come to age in, in that environment, when the world has, the rug has been pulled out from under you, you, uh, you, you don't know what the future holds, but you know, there is this sort of vaguely evil corporate conspiracy that tries to doom everyone around you. Um, you sort of try and find ways to get at that or help at that, you know, uh, in whatever way possible. I think, you know, a lot of my entry to that, too, was stonerdom because it was like one of the very stupid stoner things you think at first is, how is this shit illegal, man? you know, of course it shouldn't be illegal, but it's, it's stupid when you think about it cause you're a dumb, you know, teenage stoner. And, um, but you know, that, that question of like overarching drug laws or why are drugs illegal will sort of lead you to the inevitable question. Yeah. Drug possession should not be a crime at all. You know, it's, uh, there, I mean, drug dealing probably should, shouldn't be a crime in many cases. Um, but, um, uh, yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe some drug. I'm not going to get into I'm not going to get on this drug abolition thing. But drug abolition, you know, uh, drug laws was was an entry into uh, leftist politics because I the, here was something that had uh, very much. when I was, you know, 18 to 21, very into the medicinal effects of marijuana because they had helped me immensely just sleep every night. You know, that was, you know, and that was nuts to me. Being able to sleep every night, that's fucking crazy, you know. And so that provided a lot of euphoria for a while. And, you know, a lot of why I felt almost indebted to marijuana in a way for giving me a part of my life back um, with with uh, out eventually ignoring its more detrimental side effects. But, um, yeah, so... I think uh, drug laws and, you know, knowing that there was something that I could be doing to attack this nefarious cabal of uh, faceless bankers at the top, you know, try and find any way to get at them, you know, once again, uh, talking about this sort of sense of rage, you know, this desire for revenge that colors everything. It was even back then, so... I, I figured the best way was institutional desire for revenge. You know, I'm, I'll be a lawyer, and lawyers can change laws by challenging bad laws. And, you know, I thought that's what, what, what I wanted to do. I, I, you know, another—I mean, also, um, I don't know what—I think to some degree I might have been inspired by Phoenix Wright, too, in my, in my pop-cultured, adult brain. But the idea of a defense attorney specifically, because that's what Phoenix Wright is, he's a defense attorney, um, in, I, I liked that character um, without you know, really knowing about the vast injustice of our own criminal justice system at the time. But um, I knew because I was just a contrarian inherently, and I knew most media depicted DAs and prosecutors as being the sort of heroic lawyer figures. I knew that in order to be be contrarian, I I like the idea of a heroic defense attorney, you know, somebody that represents somebody who has been falsely accused, who has been under the thumb of some sort of uh, authority figure. Uh, (laughs) Actually, uh (laughs) what probably contributed to that uh, was in 2011, I got caught selling weed at my college, and I was uh, suspended for a couple of days, and they were figuring out whether to expel me. But through a series of a series of things that happened, uh, I did not get expelled. But actually, that sort of inspired me a little too, you know, realizing that oh, just because somebody says you're fucked doesn't mean you're fucked. You know, you can there are things that you can do to. Get out of it because, you know, you deserve a second chance. There are circumstances that militate in your favor, right? You know, you you don't do things that are against the law necessarily because you're bad. You you do them because... uh, you're caught as a victim of, uh, as a victim of circumstance. So, you know, all of those probably came together to contribute in the idea. I want to be, a I want to be a defense attorney. I want to be a public interest attorney. I want to be uh, some sort of, maybe I'll work for the ACLU. Maybe i will be a free speech attorney because, you know, that was also a high-minded goal at the time. But, um, yeah, so I enrolled in law school. I did not do terribly well on the LSATs. Uh, and fine, good enough. I, I was able to get a scholarship to like a very middle of the road law school. Um, also, what was sort of uh, what was sort of uh, militating uh, for me going to law school was I didn't want to leave America yet. I had gone to school in America. And, uh, I had so many friends who had moved to the New York area that I wanted to stay in New York. And so law school was also just another way of keeping me in New York as well. Um, but, um, more than that, I, I had just, you know, grown sort of confident in the way that this was the path of the future. This was the way that I could become an adult and afford myself some sort of esteem, uh, and, you know, really get to where I needed to be going in life. Uh, law school went fucking terribly. The American law school went fucking terribly, terribly, terribly. Uh, I had bedbugs the entire time that I was living in New York and, uh, hilariously enough was getting no sleep. As a result of that, the insomnia had come back again, but this time it was born from these horrible (laughs) nightmarish creatures. You know, um, yeah. If you've ever had bed bugs, it's a fucking nightmare. And so I just could not concentrate at school ever, and was getting terrible grades. And uh, that summer, I, I had got an internship at a public defender uh, in Char- in Charlotte. I had an internship at the Charlotte Public Defender. Um, and I was fucking useless. I was just, you know, worse than useless. And I knew it too. You know, that's the thing about imposter syndrome. There's a lot of hay made about imposter syndrome nowadays, but, uh, what if you know you're bad at your job? <laughs> what if you know you're like, a, like actually a burden to have around? Um, and I was sort of dealing with that. And the way I was dealing with that was in this the way that I had always dealt with stuff was by compulsively writing music and compulsively making art, because that was at least something that I had a measure of control over something that I I knew that I could do. Um, even, you know, though my art was chintzy and shitty, it was like good to the level that I wanted it to be at. So that's what I would do instead of like researching cases that I could give to my supervisors the next day. I, you know, I would just be fucking around on the internet a lot. I wasn't doing a lot. I wasn't injured. I wasn't getting paid. So, you know, it wasn't that bad, but, um, still I was taking up the time of people that, uh, you know, probably could have been doing better things at any rate. Um, I had learned that I lost my scholarship from this law school that summer. And, um, that's uh that was and a a trigger warning for people is get a little sensitive but that was the first time i uh, made any attempt on my own life was learning that i had lost the scholarship uh from my law school because instead of now me paying like uh 5k a year it was now 50k a year that's how how much my scholarship was for and that's how much American law school prices had inflated, so that was obviously unaffordable. I could, I, I could not do that, so there was no choice but to quit law school. And I, I remember having like an argument with my mom um, about it, and you know, she, she was said she was willing to pay the fifty k, and I was, no, this is not worth it. You should not be doing that. But um, I was very distraught, not from necessarily the argument with my mom, but just from the enormity of everything you know convincing myself that, that um, this this is the thing this was the thing this is what I was going to do and n- receiving two big pieces of two big signs that this was not what you should be doing but I couldn't reconcile that you know I couldn't reconcile oh I knew I was being shitty at my internship and two uh, uh, like I lost my scholarship which is like definitive proof that I was shitting at this, and um, so I d- decided that's it. I'm I'm gonna kill myself. I feel terrible. I feel I. This is the worst anyone has ever felt. Even this petty, stupid shit, which anyone can recover from. I I didn't need to work myself up into thinking this is all. This is all. It's gonna be for you. This is all. It's gonna be for you forever. But I did. And so uh, I looked up on Google how to make a noose, which is a very funny thing to look up on Google. In retrospect, how to make noose, how, how to kill self on Google. And what's funny is, like, Google will give you the, like, um, they say, if you're, if you're having problems, here's the port that you can call. But they'll also show you the killing yourself results. They'll show you the, like... This, here are the suicidemethods.com. We only publish these so that you can do it safely, because otherwise you might get this information from someone who wouldn't instruct you how to do it. There, There's like a bunch of suicide methods resources online, which is very funny. Uh, I wonder if they're still there or if they're as easy to look up. But anyway, I looked up how to tie noose on, on Google, and I tied a noose uh, out of available uh, ties that I had had uh, that would come up later, uh, and uh, I was going around the Charlotte, the suburban Charlotte Woods, looking for a branch, <laughs> hunting around for a branch to hang myself, and uh, then I I sort of snapped out of it at at that time because when you're you're sort of roaming around this this uh, place that was foreign to me at at, at night and you know especially. Uh, you know it didn't get that serious i got to the noose making stage of the suicide attempt but it never proceeded to actual physical harm um and uh you know so th- that that fucked with me for a while and i eventually you know i moved back to canada and uh what's weird is that festered in me though that loss festered in me so i decided to do law school again but this time out of spite there wasn't even any sort of like, I, I still retain the idea that I wanted to be a public interest lawyer, but this time my brain was mostly uh, just saying like, oh, they think you can't do this. They think you can't do this. I don't know who they was, but they thought I couldn't do this. So I had to do it. And this time it went went much better, you know, because of that sort of dogged determination or that, that desire to prove myself, at least, you know, in the... Uh, act of getting a law degree, I was able to uh, do relatively well in Canadian law school. And even, you know, my clinic work was better than the work that I had done at um, the Charlotte Public Defender, that's for sure. But it, it was still lacking, though. I was still not suited for it because I, I don't have sort of a decisiveness that you need. It's sort of like a a shark-like scheduling brain that you need to really uh, be an effective lawyer. And, um, that, uh, that eventually, you know, after I graduated law school, I, I got, you know, a dream internship, a dream. Well, in Canada, how it works is you do your, uh, uh, what, what is it even called? I don't even remember what it's fricking called anymore. Uh, it's not your residency. I was a student at law. Oh God, what is it? Oh God, <laughs> I see. That's how bad of a lawyer I would be. I don't even remember what this very important thing is called. You do. It's a placement program where you need to do one year at like a, a law firm as an almost lawyer as a student at law before you get your full on lawyer license. You know, and I I did it at a place that. I really admire it was like a really great legal clinic and I loved it a lot. And, and, all the people there, you know, I have nothing but good things to say for, but I was just ill suited to the job. I, I could not muster that sense of organization. Uh, I I'm sure it was from, you know, the weed, uh, I'm sure, uh, you know, I wasn't like smoking at work or anything, but, um, you know, just doing it so much in the evening, uh, before, uh, after work was, uh, like, uh, it would fuck me up for the next day as well, and, you know, this was on top of, you know, 10 years of my brain being addled by that, so I couldn't do anything fast enough, I couldn't research fast enough, you know, I was just too filled with anxiety to make decisions, and, uh, you know, that, that fucked with me enough too, because, you know, I had done it again. I had I had killed the bear. i had slayed the beast. I had accomplished law school. I had gotten my law degree. I was on my way to doing this important thing. You know, this was another investment. I was about to become an adult. Um but I just was bad at it. And you know, lots of students are bad in their first year. Um but um, I was especially bad, you know, so bad that I knew that I was burdening those around me uh, by by being this bad, and that's where suicide attempt number two comes in. Once again, the tie noose. Once again, I had opted for the tie noose. How ironic that this symbol, the suit symbol, shall be my death, you know. And this time, it actually proceeded to the self. I got, I got close enough the second time to joking myself to death, uh, that, um, you know, I went to the ward and, you know, that was the first time I went to the ward. I, I shouldn't say I went to the ward because I was never interred. I never spent any time, you know, they did take my shoelaces for the, you know, the five hours I was in, uh, <laughs> I was in the waiting room, but, you know, I, I uh, was lucky enough that I didn't call the cops on myself. So, uh, I had no need to be, uh, put into, uh, put into the asylum but um you know that's that sort of preceded this long time of just you know not being able to do anything that's when i first started actually using ssris you know that's what around age 26 yeah age 25 or 26 that's when i started fucking my body up <laughs> who knows i there's a big SSRI debate. I currently don't use an SSRI. I use uh, something else. I use something called mirtazapine, which has kind of worked for me. It's hard to know if it works or not. That's sort of how they work is there strange placebos. That, I mean, not, not even people that study them know really how they work. Like, the full extent of their effect is unknown. It's a very funny thing that a lot of, like, uh, mental health medication, a lot of pharmaceuticals is guesswork that it kind of sort of does it and you know that's as good as you're gonna get but uh uh yeah and um that's that's when i was sort of at my lowest ebb of depression too and you know such that uh i i had had my boyfriend jay you know him if you listen to the show you know and i think i wasn't able to bring my A game or, you know, the relationship definitely deteriorated as a result of this ongoing depression and the fact that, you know, I just didn't feel like a person or like my sense of personhood had been totally crumbled because, you know, however, you know, much I had staked on being a lawyer before now that I had actually completed law school and had gotten a taste of doing the actual work that was involved in public interest law, you know, this was it. This was it. This was the show. And no, you're not. You're not supposed to be doing this. And um, I think that, you know, that still chased me, you know, even after I quit, uh, quit the whole lawyer game and decided to get an office job, you know, where where I was working in an office job, even that responsibility, that sense of adult responsibility or wasn't even adult responsibility, just the clerical work, just that busy work, it it, it made me feel dead inside, it made me feel like uh, uh, I had nowhere to run to, it was that full body discomfort, it was rubbing your fingernails against silk every single day, for every single hour of every single day, and um, yeah, and uh, so I had to eventually quit the office job too, and you know, for a while that's uh I was I was living off of unemployment which is when I started doing the comics uh, and I found that oh after <laughs> after 32 years of just sort of dicking about and investing too much time and money in the wrong thing, I had finally found this incredibly stupid thing that managed to be be emotionally fulfilling and seemed like maybe something that I could Pursue uh, in terms of a career, and sometimes sometimes it takes that long. I guess if I'm coming to a conclusion. Sometimes you just have to like really fuck up throughout your twenties and really have a fucking bad time, and <laughs> in order to find out that the thing which provides you sort of spiritual solace is this incredibly silly thing. And um, the thing about comics is that. I guess the the struggle, uh, you know, we g- come back to the struggle of being an artist in general. Is this important? Is my voice worthy to be heard over the vast amount of other voices? The, there's such an amazing amount of talented people in the world. And even though you're not really competing with them, in many ways you are. Because there's only a certain amount of time that people have to pay attention to art, right? And... That is a that is a finite resource. So, you know, even though you're not in competition for an artist, you're always in somewhat competition for the attention of an audience, Um, which, you know, you should don't think about that. Don't let you know if you're an artist, don't let that color your idea of what you should do. You should do what you do because you want to do it. You want to express something, not because you want it seen by a mass of people. But if you do eventually like turn your mind to how do I make like a living off of this, especially if you do it through some sort of social media platform, then that thought does enter your head of, oh, I'm competing for people's attention. Um, But, yeah, so that thought that, you know, that sort of uh, competing for people's attention to thought, but, you know, the slightness, especially of what I do, like you're drawing stupid, funny little assholes, you know, you're drawing funny little penises, you're nothing, you're no good, you don't, you don't have to do anything, even though, you know, um, there's no prestige or there's no power marshalling like I wanted from the law job. It is uh, something that is much more spiritually attuned to, to who I am, you know, and ultimately I don't feel that full body discomfort anymore. I don't feel the fingernails against silk feeling, um, because, um, I don't dread the next day. I'm not dreading the next day. I'm looking forward to being able to do something, to create something, uh, something that feels natural. And, you know, I'm not making a living off of it yet. You know, I've been lucky enough. I have, I have family money, which I've been subsisting on. Uh, like a leech, like a goddamn leech. While I get this uh, cartoon Patreon shit together, um, but um, yeah, I I think that's uh, one of the one of the horrible realizations you can make yourself is, oh God, I'm an artist. I'm not doing anything important. You know, I'm not I'm not writing laws. You know, I'm not organizing people. It turns out my talents are best suited to. Uh, draw, drawing funny little penis disguise, which is a, is a funny realization to make about yourself. Um, something that you should have understood maybe this whole time, that you are a fundamentally unserious person, that you are a clown, and you feel a lot of shame about being a clown. But, uh, you know, it's just like Leonard Nimoy says when he's pulling Krusty from the monorail, the world needs laughter. <laughs> or at least that's what I tell myself. Um. So, thank you for coming along with me on this uh, journey of talking about my mental health. Um. And uh, if I if I wanted to do anything with this, it's it's mostly just uh, I I think there is value in putting your your mental health history out there. I think there is value uh, because even if it's the most basic thing to do, even if it is this sort of cliched parlance of our times, I think one of the things depression can do is convince you that you are utterly alone and um, that there's nothing for you out there. And no one understands how you feel, really. And this this pain is unique, so unique, that nobody would be able to sympathize with it. But no, it's... No, you, lots of people going through what you're going through. And, you know, if you just... If you develop the simple courage to ask them about it, they might tell you about it, and you might feel a little less alone. So, with that, have a great night, and I love you all.